Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Amen. Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Hey, just in case you came in late and missed this at the opening, uh, we are going to, I'm super glad that everybody's here this morning, but we are going to, I'm going to record a message later this week, and we're going to be online only uh, next weekend, and then Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we won't gather for worship either. Uh, We'll be back together in the first week in December, Lord willing. A number of churches uh, here in the Valley uh, have made a decision to go online only for the next couple weeks, and it's just kind of the the price of trying to be a church in the midst of a pandemic. And so when we go through these surges, uh, that's what we have to try to lead through in a way that keeps everybody healthy. And so we'll send out more information uh, about that, but uh, that'll be on YouTube uh, next Sunday, uh, and it'll be a part of our First uh, Peter series, which we're going to continue together this morning. So let me uh, go ahead and pray for us, and then we are going to get into the next se- section of First Peter together, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for each of these people. Thank you, God, that you are here with us in this place. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. And today, we need to hear your voice. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pull our eyes off of what has consumed so much of our attention this week, and I pray that you would fix our eyes on two things. I pray that you would fix our eyes on who you are, that you would remind us this morning from your word who you are and what you're like, and you would remind us and center our attention on who you have called us to be, right now. And Lord, I I thank you that you have said in your word that you have not given us a spirit of fear. So Lord, I just pray that you would uh, remove fear from our hearts and give us a deep centering trust in you. So would you do that? We pray that you would because we know that you can in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I'm going to need you to, to work with me, okay? You have masks on, so I give you a real clear cue on everyone says we all know what to say. So everyone said, all right, it's already, it already feels a little uncomfortable and weird today, so we're going to have to come together as family, and, uh, and you're going to have to help me out. So here's what I want to do. I, I want to start this morning inviting you to consider what I believe is a very sizable question, and that question is this. What is your primary purpose in life? Think about that for a second. What is your primary purpose in life. Here's another way to, say, to phrase that same question. What would you say is your chief directive, goal, or requirement in life? So your primary purpose is what sets the direction of your life every single day. And so think of it kind of like your North Star. Prior to modern navigation technology, the North Star or Polaris was essential in helping especially sailors identify both where they were and where they were headed. And the North Star appears to hold perfectly still located at the North Celestial Pole while the entire northern sky circles around it. And so if you face the North Star, and you stretch out your arms, your left arm faces due west, and your right arm faces due east, and your back faces due south. And identifying this 
true north helped them set their direction, and apart from it, they would have completely lost their way. And the truth is, everyone needs a north star. Everyone needs a chief directive, a vision that sets the direction for your day-to-day life. Everyone needs a primary purpose. And so let me ask you again, what is your primary purpose in life? And while you may not have like a super clear, succinct answer at the tip of your tongue, make no mistake, you do have one. Everyone lives for a primary purpose. The question is simply, which one? And as followers of Jesus, the problem is not that we lack a primary purpose. The problem is we tend to live for the wrong one. See, we are, we are prone to make things like the approval of people our primary purpose. Or we're prone to make something like power, uh, influence, impact, or significance our primary purpose. We're prone to make things like money, success, or comfort our primary purpose. And so understand, the problem is not that all of these things are inherently bad. The problem is that none of these things are meant to be our primary purpose or pursuit in the Christian life. And so as we come back to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, Peter sets for us what should be our North Star for every Christian life. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. The primary purpose of every Christian life is to commit each day to doing what God deems good. The primary purpose of every Christian life is to commit each day to doing what God deems good. The Bible is filled with direction from God's own mouth defining what he deems good. And so our primary purpose is simply to live his way. And the challenge is that sometimes doing what God deems good will result in suffering, opposition, and persecution in our lives. Not always, but sometimes it will. And so today, Peter both conveys our primary purpose and counsels us on what to do when we suffer as a result of it. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, do me a favor and open to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are going to be in verses 13 to 17 this morning, and I want to call this morning Agent for Good. Agents for Good. That's what God has created us and called us to be as followers of Jesus. We are to be agents of good. So look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Peter writes this. He says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So again, Peter starts by conveying our primary purpose, and then he provides us with counsel on the off chance that we suffer as a result of pursuing that good. So let's start again in verse 13. Again, he starts with this question, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now, it would not surprise me if skepticism is your first response to this rhetorical question that Peter asks. 
Because just think about the nature of that question. He asked this question, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now, we may feel skepticism in response to that because we can probably all think of examples of people who have or do suffer because they are doing good. One example would be, oh, I don't know, maybe Jesus. Because Jesus only ever did anything that was good and he was crucified as a result. So just think about the countless number of people who have suffered for fighting for something good. Abraham Lincoln, for example, fought for the very good purpose of emancipating slaves and he was killed. Martin Luther King gave his life to the fight for the very good purpose of basic civil rights for people of color and he was killed because of it. Gandhi practiced nonviolent protest in the good fight for freedom in India, and he was killed by a Hindu fanatic who believed that he treated Muslims with too much respect. And so my point is simply that we can all think of examples of people who have or do suffer because they do good things. And so what exactly is Peter saying here? Well, let me make two observations about this verse that I think will help. The first is, never forget that anytime we are studying a single verse, like in verse 13, we have to remember to read it in the context of what has come before it. And so remember back with me, it's been a couple of weeks, but back in verse 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, where David writes, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And so then we come to verse 13, our verse this morning, and Peter writes, Who then, meaning, um, meaning, uh, because God is attentive to his people and because he is opposed to those who do evil, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now this sounds a lot like Romans 8.31, where the Apostle Paul writes, If God is for us, who is against us? Now, neither Peter nor Paul were strangers to the reality that we do, in fact, experience immediate suffering in this life. In fact, history tells us that both Peter and Paul were put to death because of their faith. So they both experienced immediate harm because of doing what God deemed good. But they also knew... They also knew that the eternity of every person who follows Jesus is secure in him. So if you are a follower of Jesus, there is zero threat on your life in the ultimate sense. And this is so, I know that it's hard for us to keep this front of mind, but there's a reason that the New Testament authors consistently write in a way that causes us to lift our eyes off of the temporary and onto the eternal. This life is temporary. The evil in this world is temporary. The suffering that we endure is temporary. James 4.14 says this life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. This life is temporary and Christ, in Christ, your eternity is completely secure. Which means, as Peter is saying here, no one can harm you in any ultimate sense. But secondly, Peter is also stating a general principle as he conveys our primary purpose. He says that we are to be devoted to what is good. Now, now the word devoted comes from a Greek word where we get the word zealot from. Um, It means one who is eager to 
perfect some action or who may be uh, an enthusiastic adherent to some cause. Now, we all either know people who are or we are ourselves zealous about certain things in life. We all have things in life that we are passionate about. We all have things that we love. We have things that we hate and we have things that we feel deeply about. And so when that's the case, we think about them a lot and we talk about them a lot. So like, think about vegans, for instance, okay? Um, There are no covert vegans. Facts, they don't exist. No vegans keep their veganism on the DL, right? Like, they never do that. They are loud and they are proud. If you have a friend who is a vegan, you know it. You know why? Because they have told you. Because they always talk about it. You've, you've heard the joke, an atheist, a crossfitter, and a vegan all walk into a bar together. I only know because they told everyone within two minutes. That's being zealous about something. So we all either know someone who is, or we are ourselves zealous about certain things in life. The question as Christians is, are we zealous about the right thing? Because I got to tell you, if the American church was as zealous about doing what God deems good as it was about politics, the world would be a better place. Now, I believe deeply politics are important. And I believe that as followers of Jesus, to the degree that God allows, we should be involved as good citizens in our country. But, and I I hope this is not like a shock to you, but politics are not our primary purpose which should free us and should encourage us. God says our primary purpose is to be zealous about everything he deems good. And furthermore, what Peter is saying in this question is a general principle, that it is hard to hate people who fill the world with good. It's not that no one will ever suffer uh, as, as long as they serve God faithfully. There's too much in our own lives, too much throughout history, too much in our world right now that we know that that is in fact not true. But it is a general principle to say it's just hard to hate people who do a bunch of good stuff in the world, which is why Peter calls them and us to it. Now, certainly there is conflict between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. But there is also, as we have talked about for a couple of months now, there's so much more overlap than we so often observe. And so Peter's counsel throughout this letter has been to look for the overlap and to be exemplary at doing good in these areas. So the primary purpose of every Christian life is to commit each day to doing what God deems good. And again, Peter is far from naive, so he knows firsthand that sometimes, no matter how faithful God's people are to their primary purpose of doing what he deems good, we are going to suffer immediate, albeit temporary, harm. Sometimes, followers of Jesus suffer for doing what God deems good. And so Peter gives us three pieces of counsel for when we suffer harm in response to doing good. And so first, he encourages us with this. Suffering for good will be rewarded graciously. Suffering for doing good will be rewarded graciously. Now remember in verse 14, I read just a few minutes ago, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Which, if we're honest, is a weird sentiment. 
The Greek word that we translate as blessed means to be characterized by happiness and being highly favored by God. So it seems weird to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. You are happy and highly favored by God. We don't tend to equate suffering and happiness or suffering and blessing. And so definition is everything. When we think of the word happy, we tend to think of it in terms of comfort. But we have to be so careful not to import our own meaning into this biblical word. So make a note of this definition. Biblical happiness... Biblical happiness is being highly favored by God's divine grace. Biblical happiness is being highly favored by God's divine grace. And so this is why Peter can say that we are blessed when we suffer for doing good. Somehow, in some way, God's grace rests on us uniquely when we suffer for doing good. So like as a dad... There are some things that draw unique pleasure and approval out of me. Like when I see my kids being kind and generous to one another, when I see them work hard, when I see them help or play with kids who are younger than them, when I see them show compassion for those who are hurting, all of these things draw a unique pleasure and approval out of me. And Peter says the same thing is true of our Heavenly Father. God sets His grace on us uniquely when we suffer for what he deems good. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So if we have fixed our faith on Jesus, we always experience God's grace, his divine favor, but When we do what he deems good, especially when we suffer as a result, we experience that grace uniquely. Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by suffering for righteousness. So the truth is we may never be more like Christ than when we suffer for doing good. Peter's first encouragement is this. Suffering for good will be rewarded graciously. His second piece of counsel is this. Suffering for good requires revering God. Suffering for good requires revering God. Peter quotes here, if you didn't notice it, from Isaiah 8, chapter 12, when he says, do not fear them or be intimidated. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Now, if you think about it, that is like a unbelievably unrealistic command, isn't it? Because fear is the natural response to someone who is trying to harm you. Agreed? If you've ever had anyone in your life that was trying to harm you and you felt fear, that makes sense. That's the natural human response. When I was in fourth grade, my family moved to Virginia uh, due to my dad's job in the Air Force. And if you've ever moved, you know that moving is really uh, hard. Um, And I think one of the things that's the, the most difficult about it is the reality of when you move, you lose existing relationships and you get to a new place and then you have to build new ones and that's just really hard. It can be very traumatic as a kid. And so I remember just getting moved into our new house and being outside in my front yard playing one day and uh, I was brand new to the neighborhood and I didn't have any friends yet and I remember seeing these four uh, kids who were a little older than me walking down the street on the other side of the street. And so Naturally, I looked longingly across the street in hopes that these kids would like want to be friends. And uh, 
uh, I don't know why, but they, they like really did not want to be friends with me. So much so, I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not making any of this up, so much so that one of these kids looks at me and he goes, hey, what are you looking at? And he ran across the street, grabbed me by my then hair, pulled my head down, kicked me straight in the face, and dropped me, and he walked away. And I just remember, I don't feel like there was enough sympathy for that. Like, I just described an assault in the street, and like two people were like, oh, bad day. I was in fourth grade. I was assaulted by four kids, and you barely cared. What is happening in our world right now? So I just, I remember, like, lying on my back as these kids walked away thinking, I, I don't know what just happened, but I, I, I don't think we're going to be friends after this. And, and I got to tell you, man, as I was being assaulted, again, for literally no reason, I was very afraid because fear is the natural response to someone who is attempting to harm you. So my question is, how on earth can Peter then say, do not fear them or be intimidated? And he's writing to a group of people who are experiencing persecution in the form of social isolation. Their surrounding culture wants less and less to do with them because of their faithfulness to doing what God deems good as followers of Jesus. And so as this persecution is ramping up, how does Peter say to them, and you don't, don't fear them or be intimidated? Well, notice that's not the only thing that he says. He also says, in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. That is the key to the first part. Because he says, regard Christ as holy. The word regard is the translation of a Greek word that means to set him apart as holy. So what it means is, it means to see Jesus as, or to revere him as holy. Peter is saying that the antidote to the fear of man is the elevation of our reverence for God. The bigger our view of God is, the smaller our concern for human opinion, the smaller our concern even about human harm. The more that honoring and being faithful to Jesus matters to us, the less we will care about anything else. And so this morning I was thinking about like, so how exactly then does our reverence for God grow? And, and there's just no way that our reverence for God grows without us fixing our eyes, our hearts, and our minds on him more frequently. Like, I, don't, I don't know how many of you have an iPhone, uh, but, but every Sunday morning, I get that thing that shows up that, that tells my screen time, you know, like how it's just this depressing moment in everyone's week where you realize how addicted to your device you are. And uh, I think the week of the election, mine, I averaged like three hours and 45 minutes a day, and my thumb was cramped, I think, from refreshing to see who was going to be our next president. And apparently, we're still not sure. So, <laughs> uh, but, but if you just, just think about that for a second. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, uh, I don't think that I probably spend three hours and 45 minutes a day studying the Bible or reading the Bible. I don't think. Any. Certain days, if I'm prepping for something, maybe I do. But by and large, I don't spend that, much, like that amount of time. But I do spend all that other time on my device. Now, my guess is you probably, on average, spend less time in the Bible than I do. Not because I'm a better Christian than you, but because it's literally my job to study the Bible. 
So my guess is that there is this huge disparity between how much time we spend consuming so much other information than we do consuming the the power and the presence and the person of God. And I think that is a significant problem for us. And I think the reason that we are so frequently overwhelmed by so much of what is happening in our world is because it's like we're just consuming that from a fire hose. Meanwhile, at best, we're getting like maybe this slow drip of God's word in our heart. And there's just no way around the fact that that affects our souls. This steady stream of stress-inducing information and maybe a slow drip of God's voice. And I do believe if we can find a way to decrease that disparity or to flip it upside down, then I think what Peter commands us to here becomes much more likely for us. Suffering for good requires revering God. And here's the last piece of counsel that Peter offers us today. Suffering for good demands a respectful defense. Suffering for good demands a respectful defense defense. Now, Peter assumes in these verses that when we continue to do what God deems good in this world, even in the face of suffering, it's going to cause other people to question how on earth we could possibly do that. Like, just think about it. Like, even when I hear stories of people loving and serving those who treat them like trash, it causes me to think, like, how on earth are you doing that? How do you continue to do good toward people that are treating you awful? That's the scenario that Peter is assuming here, that as they continue to do good, even though they're experiencing persecution, and even as we experience pushback, opposition, or persecution in the midst of doing good, that it's going to cause this question culturally that's like, how, how are you doing that? And so Peter says that we should expect this and be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I've been listening to people quote that verse since I was a little kid, and I know the way that it has made me feel, and I know the way that it makes many Christians feel. It makes us feel very intimidated because we tend to think of giving a defense as being put on trial by someone who is hammering us with questions in hopes of dismantling our faith and us not having all the right answers. So a couple of thoughts. First, um, that can happen, for sure. It can happen. Sometimes we find ourselves conversing with very combative people whose intent is to deconstruct our faith. I've told this story before, but man, I, I remember when I was working at Starbucks, there was this one uh, fellow partner who found that I was a Christian, and I think it's pretty safe to say that she borderline hated Christianity. And so one day, man, she was just pounding me with all of these questions about how the Bible says a person is made right with God. And so I explained the basics of salvation through faith in Jesus. And I got to tell you, she was like not happy with this answer. She was a little bit of a hippie, and she was obsessed with classic rock. And so she started to hammer me with all of these questions about the eternal destiny of her favorite musicians, which I was like, I don't, I don't know these people. So she just, she kept, she goes, oh, so will Jimi Hendrix be in heaven? Uh, will Janis Joplin be in heaven? She was just like so fired up. And I was just like, I, I, I don't know them, so... I don't know. And I said, I said, you know, but the Bible does say 
that if we do not put our faith in Jesus, we will not spend eternity with him. And she, I just, I will never forget where I was sitting when she stormed out of the room screaming at me like over her shoulder, if Jimi Hendrix is not in heaven, I don't want to go to your heaven. And I was like, in this moment, I'm okay with that because this is really scaring me. She was just so hot about this situation. So let me just say, should you ever find, and I know a situation like that is one of our great fears. We're, we're being pounded with something, pounded with questions that our answers seem insufficient for. Or we get asked questions that we don't know. We have such a huge fear of being asked questions we don't know the answers to. And so I just want to say to you, don't worry about having all the right answers. Let me put your mind at ease by saying that there is a huge sum of Scripture that says you and I save no one. Only God does that. God doesn't need you to have all the right answers to work in someone's life. So he doesn't need us all to be like C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller and be exceptional at the work of apologetics. We should do our best, but we don't have to have all the answers. And second of all, what Peter actually says here is that we should be able to just give a humble, which is what that word gentle means, a humble and respectful defense for the hope that is in us. And so you know what question you should be able to give an answer to? You should be able to give an answer to the question, why do you love Jesus? Like if someone were to ask you that, I wonder what you'd say. Why, why do you love Jesus? Because again, think about the context of what Peter's writing to. He's talking about people that experience persecution because of doing good and continue to do good in the midst of it. And so this question comes of like, how, how, how do you do that? How do you keep doing good in a world that is out to destroy you? And the answer is, well, because we love Jesus. So how, what would you give as an answer to the question, why do, why do you love Jesus? You know, if, if someone asked me that, I would, I would just say, well, I, I have just found Jesus to be very good and kind. He gave his life to make me his. And the more time that I spend with him, the more I experience his help and his healing, and that's why I have hope. And so Peter says when we do this, it has the power to dismantle attempts to disparage us. And this is why he ends by saying, it's better to suffer for doing good than evil. Suffering for righteousness will be rewarded, but suffering for sin is its own consequence. We have to remember that the context of the suffering, the reason for the suffering that Peter's talking about. He's not saying, hey, every time you suffer, you're going to be blessed. Sometimes we suffer because we sin. That's on us. That's consequence. There's no blessing in that. It's just suffering because of our own sin. But when we suffer because of doing what God deems is good, we experience this unique setting of God's grace and favor upon us. And so Peter says that suffering for good will be rewarded graciously, it requires revering God, and it demands a respectful defense. The primary purpose of every Christian life is to commit each day to doing what God deems good. And so right now, 
everyone listening, falls into one of two groups. There are those of us who have this hope because they've chosen to follow Jesus by faith, and then there are those who do not have this hope because they have not. And so if you're listening this morning and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to continue to invite you to do so. He is good and he is kind. And he did sacrifice his own life for yours. And he rose from the dead and now he invites all those who are weary and worn out to come to him and to find rest for their souls. And all that he's asked of you is that you answer this invitation to follow him by faith. There isn't this long list of rules that God has given you. If you jump through these hoops and you meet these marks, then I will receive you. That is the message of religion. Jesus came to declare war on religion because it saves no one and it destroys everyone. He came declaring grace. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So if you're here and you've not made the decision to follow that Jesus, I would invite you to do so. If you're listening and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you to consider what good you can intentionally put into your world this week. What good can you intentionally put into your world this week? We're all more isolated right now, which is hard, and we're spending far more time at home, which is hard, and we're spending less time with people, which is hard, but I want you to think about the people and the space that make up your world right now, and what good can you intentionally put into that world this week? I mean, we can sit and we can be overwhelmed by the nature and the state of the world right now. Or we can be aware that that's going on and we can still live according to the primary purpose for which God created us and to put good into the world that he's put us in. And so how can you do that intentionally this week? Maybe you can do some specific good if you have people that you live with. Maybe you can do specific good for those you live with uh, this week. Maybe you can serve a neighbor in some way. Maybe you can write letters of encouragement to friends. Maybe there is some good that you can do at work or wherever you get coffee or you grocery shop. You and I are called to commit every day to doing what God deems good. We are to be agents of good. That is our primary purpose. So let's choose hope in our good God. Let's remind our souls that he is and he always will be faithful to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an old, older pastor who died, I believe, back in the 1950s or 60s. And in one of his great, great books, he said, The problem for many Christians is that we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. And so one of the reasons that we gather together like this, one of the reasons that the Psalms are written the way that they are, one of the reasons that we sing is so that we are not just listening to ourselves, listening to our feelings, listening to our fear, listening to all that overwhelms us. We have to learn to talk back. 
That's why King David would write, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? There's an honest admission to what he's feeling, but there is also a speaking of truth into it. And so we have a choice this morning, and we can choose hope. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while our difficulty and our suffering is real, it is also temporary. Jesus will most certainly lead us out of it. And until then, our primary purpose is to commit each day to doing what God deems good. So let's do that together. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, you are good and faithful and true. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You will never leave us or forsake us. And so I pray, God, that we would choose to hope in you this morning. And that we would allow the hope that we have to propel us forward into the primary purpose for which you have made us, which is to, to do what you deem as good every single day. And so, Lord, first and foremost, if there's anyone listening who does not know you, and has not chosen to follow Jesus by faith. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would awaken their hearts to faith right now. And that by your grace, as best they know how, they would begin to take one step at a time as they follow you and find rest for their soul. And Lord, for those of us that are your followers, even in the midst of our weariness and our fatigue, God, help us to continue to fight to not just lay down and die in the midst of it, but to continue to fight for hope, continue to fight for joy, continue to fight for peace. And we need your strength for that, Lord, because we cannot do it alone. We want to be agents of good, even now, especially now. And so I just pray that you would guide us and direct us and help us not only have the strength for, but also have the wisdom and discernment to see specifically and intentionally how we can put good into the world that we live in right now. Would you guide us in that? Would you help us in that? Would you show yourself to be who you are? We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. That was worse than the first one. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That We're getting worse as the day goes on with our amening. I love you very much. Why don't you stand to your feet? Shannon's going to close us in this simple chorus. Let's sing about who God is.